Thank you. If you were to sit down before a map of the globe and compare it to Jesus' great commission, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, and then ask the question, how have we done? How does, this, how does this map compared to Jesus' command to go, go to all the nations, how do, we, how do we match that up? Have we done pretty well? If you were to look at a modern world map, there are about 196 countries, give or take a two, depending on who you're counting and who you're not counting, about, about 195 to 197. And again, if you were to ask, is there, are there Christians, are there disciples of Jesus in every single one of those nations? I don't know the facts on that, but I would say probably pretty close. And if there were not a disciple of Jesus in one of those nations, we could say, okay, we got we to gotta send somebody there. And I believe in the power of the gospel, and I think we can make a disciple in each one of those nations. And so perhaps we could come pretty close to saying, see, Jesus, we've done it. We have made disciples of all the nations. And maybe Jesus would say, well, wait a second now. Those aren't the nations that existed when I said, make disciples of all the nations. And so could it be that Jesus actually meant something different than the political nations as we know them today when he said, make disciples of all the nations? In fact, that's from Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. And that word nations is literally a word that that means the nationalities, or the ethnicities, in fact, it comes from a word, or the word there is the one from which we get ethnic or ethnic group or ethnicities. And so maybe Jesus is trying to say, hey, I want you to reach all of the ethnicities of the world, which would fit pretty well with what he said in Genesis chapter 12, which we read during Bible class, that through Abraham, he would bless all of the families of the earth. And perhaps it fits well with the image of what Jesus the Lamb has done for mankind in Revelation chapter 5. Do you remember verse 9 and 10? It's a beautiful image. He says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God. Who did the Lamb ransom? Watch this. For people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, for they shall reign on the earth. So maybe what Jesus has in mind when he says make disciples of all the nations, that we are to make disciples of all of the ethnicities or all the people groups of the world. Now with that in mind, we look at a map again and we ask, okay, how many people groups are they and have we made disciples of those people groups? Now, the tricky thing here is it depends on who's counting and who's figuring out who this, how many people groups there are. But according to one group that focuses on this, they're called the Joshua Project. You could look them up. They've got some cool maps on, on their website. As of Friday, according to the Joshua Project, there are 17,009 unique people groups in the world. And a people group would be, or an ethno-linguistic people group would be a group that speaks its own language. They are of their own ethnicity and they are in a particular country. 17,000 of these people groups. Now the question we might ask then is, how many of these people groups are still unreached by the gospel? 
Now, if you're looking for a number straight from Churches of Christ, I don't have that number, and I don't know of anybody who does have that number. But there are groups like the Joshua Project who, who make an attempt to say, okay, this is how many of these groups have been reached by evangelicals. All right, so that's the best I can do when it comes to t- statistics today. So you can kind of figure out what an evangelical would be according to a group like this, a conservative Bible-believing church, something like that. And just based on evangelical churches across the globe, there are still 7,000, this is as of Friday, 7,078 people groups that are still unreached by the gospel of Jesus, which means they don't have a church in their culture that is able to reach their people or they are less than 2% Christian. Now I show you that number to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. I hope you look at that number and say, wow, that's, that's not good. And if we were to try to figure out what that number would be if it were churches of Christ, I think the number of unreached groups would be significantly higher, unfortunately. But it's not just about unreached people groups. What about right here in the United States? Would we say that there's no need for work in the United States because there are several million Christians or whatever here? Well, no, we would say there are still all kinds of people who still need the gospel. My point is the need is great. In fact, if you were to go to the Joshua Project, it's kind of hard to see, but this is their map of the world. All those red dots are, according to the Joshua Project, unreached people groups. And there are even some in the United States, but you can tell where many of them are. Let me share another statistic with you. It's estimated that 31% of our world is, quote, Christian. And that would include anybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus in any way. Any, quote, Christian religion, 31% of the globe would fall into that category. Now, of the rest of the populations, you've got about one-third of the world's population who has heard, who has access to the gospel, but it's estimated that about one-third of the world's population has never heard the basics of the gospel. One-third of the world's population does not know that Jesus died for their sins. Isn't it kind of funny that 94% of the world's population recognizes this symbol. They know what a Coca-Cola is. In fact, if, if you've traveled very far, I don't think I've ever been to a place where there wasn't somebody with a Coca-Cola. I remember going on a hike in the Andes Mountains one time, and we came down, we were in the middle of nowhere, and we came down off that mountain, and we were gonna have a meal, and there was this little girl who came walking up to us. She was, again, we're way off in the mountains. She comes up to us. She has these two bags filled with water. And she sits down on the ground. She opens up the bags and she pulls out some Coca-Colas. She knew, she knew what we wanted. It was an ice-cold Coca-Cola um, after hiking in the mountains. It was, was pretty great. Been to islands in the middle of, middle of nowhere. Still have Coca-Cola. 94% of the world's population knows what Coca-Cola is. Coca-Cola really started spreading around 1896. So in 122 years, the world has been reached for profit's sake. And somehow, we haven't done it in 2,000 years for the sake of the gospel. Now based on the statistics I've shown you, 
if the world population right now is around 7.5 billion, that's about the estimate right now, 7.5 billion, if one-third of them have never heard the gospel, don't have access to the basics of the gospel, that means 2.5 billion people don't have access to the gospel, which means, if you run the stats, somewhere around 60,000 people in our world die daily without knowing anything about Jesus. If it's true that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and if it's true that we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, Matthew 22, and if it's true that we're also called to love our enemies, Matthew chapter 5, and then Jesus has said, make disciples of all the nations, then these statistics ought to break our hearts. If it's true that God loves the world, that we are to love everyone, our neighbors and our enemies, and that Jesus said, take the message to all of these people, and there's still untold millions who do not know anything about Jesus, our hearts ought to be broken by these sorts of statistics. But if you're anything like me, these statistics hurt my heart every time I share them. But I'll get in the car this afternoon, and you know what I'll probably do? I'm, I'm from West Virginia. I'm a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. You've probably never even met a Pittsburgh Pirates fan before. Here I am. I'll, I'll turn the Pirates game on the radio. I think they've got a noon game. I might catch some of it. One o'clock maybe. I'll turn that game on. And I'll focus on things that are important to me. And probably five or six o'clock tonight, we'll get to thinking on, on the way back to Henderson, boy, we want something good to eat. And I'll find something good to eat for sure. Without a thought of the multitudes who do not know Jesus. You see, as we said in our Bible class this morning, sometimes our passion for the lost, our broken hearts, the way we feel, those feelings fade. And while the mission of God that we talked about this morning throughout all of Scripture ought to sustain our motivation for missions, I want to share with you this morning during our worship time one more biblical theme that I think serves as an anchor for why we do missions. In fact, it, may, it might be the most unwavering anchor we have. So, why do missions, why stay motivated for missions when in reality our emotions aren't appropriately stable enough to sustain our passion for missions? Why should we remain passionate for missions? Let me give you one, one more reason this morning. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul is describing his calling and his apostleship. Watch what he says. Through whom, this is Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, and we'll skip to the last words, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. So why is it that Paul says, that we've been called to bring about the obedience of faith to all the nations. You read the book of Acts, Paul is all over the Mediterranean world. You read 2 Corinthians 11, he sacrifices a lot to do it. Why? Notice that Paul doesn't say, well, we are out to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations because of the Great Commission. Now surely that played a part, but it's interesting that Paul never mentions the Great Commission in his writings. 
Notice that he also does not say the reason we're out to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations is because we just love them to death. We just, in fact, I, he doesn't say, I, I really love Greece. Boy, it's cool there. He doesn't say, well, it's because I have a deep compassion for the people. Or a deep love for the people. And he, he likely did. But according to this passion, his primary motivation is what? He says, this apostleship has come to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul's primary motivation for mission, according to Romans chapter 1 verse 5, is the glory of God. One author, John Piper, in his book about missions, he wrote one, he's written one about everything, but in his one about missions, here's, here's what he says, and this is a bit of a long quote, but you're a smart audience, you, you can handle it. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Now, I would stop there as a missions guy and say, wait a second, we don't want to give the worship leaders a big head. We don't want the song leaders to think that their job is more important. I want, I want missions to be most important. And Piper says, no, missions is not the ultimate. Worship is. Now, watch, his, watch what he says. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Think about that. When we reach eternity, missions will be no more. But worship abides forever. So worship is the fuel and goal of missions. Let me zoom in. If that was a long quote and you kind of got lost there, let me zoom in on what I think is the most important part. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Why do you support Brother Ricky in India? If every person in India glorified Yahweh God, we wouldn't need to send Ricky to India. But there are millions upon millions of people in India who do not glorify God, but rather bow the knee to other gods and other idols. And therefore, because worship does not exist among all the people of India, we do missions in India. And we thank Ricky for his sacrifices in India. Why do you share the gospel with your neighbors right here in Montgomery? If everybody in Montgomery glorified God with their lives and their actions and their worship. We could shut down the evangelism program, couldn't we? We could say, well, we don't need any local mission work. Everybody already worships God. But you know they don't. Perhaps your neighbors don't worship God. And therefore, you continue to reach out to them to live on mission you see, if everybody worshiped God, missions will be no more. So why do, we, why do we do missions then? Based on that, if it's true that, that worship is primary and glorifying God is primary, and we do missions because not everybody glorifies God, then what is our fuel? Sometimes our fuel for missions, our motivation for missions is very people-centered, isn't it? Mine is often. It's because I love this group of people and I want to share the gospel with them and I have a, a passionate feeling about them and I, 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 and them, them. When in reality, shouldn't our missions be God-centered? If he is the center and source and creator of all things, shouldn't everything we do be centered on him? 
And so let me give you one more grand motivation for missions this morning, and it's just simple. If you don't remember anything else, please remember this. We do missions because we want people everywhere to glorify God. Isn't that isn't that why we do missions? It's not just because I love people and have compassion for people and because they're lost. While those are all great motivations, at the core of why we do what we do is God. And we want people everywhere to acknowledge him for who he is. We do missions because of who he is, not because, primarily because of who we are. We do missions because we want people everywhere to glorify God. Now the question might be is, how does, how does God feel about this? Does God really want people everywhere to glorify him? Let me point you to just a couple of passages. How about the one we just read? What is at God's attitude about himself? Watch this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. And he's speaking about his people and how he's refined them. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Why? For my own sake. Repeat it. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Just from this passage alone, we see the centrality of God in his own opinion or his own thoughts of who he is. It's not an opinion if it's from God. How does God view himself as the one to be glorified above all else? And you find it elsewhere. If we believe Scripture to be from God, watch how Scripture defines why we do what we do. You know Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Or, how about Ephesians chapter 1? Why does God carry out his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ? Watch this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Or Romans 15, verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? Why do we welcome one another in the context of Romans 14 and 15, even in spite of differences of opinion sometime? Because we all just want to have a warm, fuzzy feeling and get a, No. For the glory of God, Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all. To the glory of God. Let me show you just one or two more. First Peter 4, verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, all of us are able to serve in some way. Whatever your talent is, however you serve, watch this. As whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then one more, Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God's passion for his own glory is unmistakable. 
Now, if I were to describe a pers- any person in this room in the same way, we would consider that person to be exceedingly, really beyond description, selfish and self-centered. This would be, if I were to say, well, brother so-and-so, you know, his passion for his own glory is unmistakable. We would think, well, that's an awful person. That's an awful person. But we can say it about God. Why? The reason we can say that God is passionate about his own glory is because of his perfection. Only a perfect being who has expressed both his love and his justice and what he has done for us, only in that sort of perfection can we say, yeah, his passion for his own glory is unmistakable without then saying, yeah, he's a really selfish being as well. Because of his perfection, we can say God's passion for his own glory is unmistakable. Let me show you one more verse from Paul's writings. In Romans chapter 15, right after he says, hey, welcome one another for the glory of God, he describes his mission in light of what Jesus has done. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. What, patriarchs. What's this? And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. We do missions because we want people everywhere to glorify God. And because we want the nations to glorify God for his mercy, which is the same reason we glorify God. We glorify him because of the mercy he has shown us. We do missions because we want people across the globe to glorify him simply because of who he is as a perfect God, but because they've experienced his mercy. Now, Oh, that's kind of theoretical. I get that. We do missions because we want people everywhere to glorify God. And maybe this is a a different slant at, at why we do missions. But what difference does this make to you? As you go back to work tomorrow, as you go back to school tomorrow, what difference does it make that we do missions because we want people everywhere to glorify God? Let me suggest just a couple of things. First one is this. If you do missions and support missions for this reason, I think it will help you and challenge you to pray differently. I hope that you pray for lost people. I hope you pray, I'm guessing, if, you, if there are lost people in your family, you pray for them. And if there are lost people in your neighborhood, I hope you pray for them. And I hope you pray for the lost people of Peru and India. I hope you pray for lost people across the globe. But when we understand that missions is primarily fueled by the glory of God, it changes the way we pray. And here's how. Instead of praying, God, please open their hearts because I really want to spend eternity with them in heaven. And that is true. But when we do this for the glory of God, our prayers become different. And we say, Father, please open their hearts because we want them to glorify you because you deserve it. Because you are God. And as a side note, we might add, and I want to spend eternity with them. I care about them, but Father, this is first about you and your glory. But here's what else I think this does and how this changes our lives. If we do missions because we want people to glorify God, I think we need to remember that the world is, is coming to us. And here's what I mean by this. Those unreached people groups that I showed you, still 7,000 of them unreached. 
they are coming to us via immigration. We have an unprecedented opportunity, I think, in history to reach the unreached people groups of the world as they show up right here on our back doorstep. While we need to be sending missionaries into all the world, there are unreached people groups right here in Montgomery who desperately need the message of Jesus. God is sending the people groups, the nations, to us. And in turn, we ought to say, thank you, God, for this incredible opportunity. But you know what I hear from a lot of Christians? Instead of thank you, God, it's God, I wish you'd just send them back. How do you think God will respond to our attitude in light of the incredible gift he has given us to reach the nations right here at home. Perhaps we could ask ourselves this question. Is your attitude about others guided more by your politics or your relationship with Jesus and your zeal for the glory of God? We have an opportunity right here to reach the nations so that they might glorify God. And if glorifying God is my number one goal, then you better believe I will welcome others so that I might point them to the glory of God. But how else does this change us? As we said in Bible class this morning, if it's our goal to bring people to God, to glorify him, that's why we do missions, then we live on mission wherever we're at and whatever we're doing. We talked about that in Bible class this morning. If it's true that we do missions because we want people everywhere to glorify God, then I want to challenge you to develop a passion for this church's missions program. Again, I said in class, occasionally I'll run into somebody who says, thanks for that lesson about missions. I'm not really into missions. Well, if glorifying God is central to who we are as people of faith and followers of Jesus, and if we do missions because we want people everywhere to glorify God, then I better be passionate about missions. Because it's not just about me. It's not just about how I feel or the love for I, ha I have for people across the globe. This is about the glory of God. And so therefore, all of us should be passionate about the incredible work that you guys are doing, the incredible budget and the money that's been set aside for this. But it's not just about throwing some money into the plate. This is about buying into what the leaders here are doing and promoting and how the leaders are changing the world. All of us, if we're passionate about the glory of God, ought to be passionate about bringing others to glorify God. And then one more if it's true that I want the nations to glorify God, and that's why we do missions, then I ought to stop occasionally and imagine a world full of people groups glorifying God. Do you ever stop and think about what it would be like for all of the people groups of the world to praise our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ? In fact, that's the image that is painted in the book of Revelation. Will you go there with me again? We hinted at it. So turn to Revelation, please. Revelation 5. Who did Jesus die for? 
Verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, watch this, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Skip over to chapter 7. In John's image of what will happen in eternity, watch this, John 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't know exactly what eternity will look like. And I don't know what our changed bodies will be like, but I'd like to believe. Now, please know this is my opinion, and I think... John hints at the fact that perhaps some of our cultural differences will, main, will be maintained. I don't know that for sure. I don't know if in heaven we'll be able to tell whether we're, what culture we're from. Perhaps not. But the image that John gives us is one of people from across the globe, from drastically different cultures, gathered around the throne singing salvation belongs to our God. If it's true that we do missions because we want people everywhere to glorify God, then we ought to stop and dream of that moment and allow that dream to drive us to do missions. But instead, I'm focused on other stuff a lot. In fact, I've got this in my, in my prayer list. I've heard it somewhere else. I don't remember who said it. Passion for missions is dead in my heart when I dream more about sports toys, places to go and people to see than I do about the nations worshiping Jesus. If you're about me, if you're like me, I dream about some of this other stuff more often than I do the nations worshiping Jesus. And perhaps that's an indication of the lackluster zeal I have for the glory of God but I want to dream of the day when we're all gathered across or before the throne of God from people groups across our globe to worship him forever. I dream of that day. Why? Because I want people everywhere to glorify God, and that's why I do missions. Here in a minute, we'll sing a song of invitation and the good news this morning is that this invitation is not just for the people groups of the world. It's for the folks right here in Montgomery, Alabama. Perhaps this morning it's, it's for you. This sweet offer of forgiveness is for you. And so here in a moment when we sing this song, perhaps you need to be baptized today. I know the folks here at Dalreda would love to help you with that. Or perhaps you want the prayers of this church family. I know the folks here at Dalreda would love to pray for you and help you.